0: We have just started a new series in this, our new venue. Uh, the series is called Encounter. We're spending nine weeks in the Gospel of Luke, looking at uh, nine life-changing encounters that people had with Jesus Christ. That's the premise of this series. And then we said last week, it's a series that's very much for all of us, wherever we might be at this morning. If you're just thinking about the Christian faith, somebody invited you here this morning, I think it's going to be quite a good, a great series for you, because each one of these talks is centered around people from different backgrounds, all of whom had a first-time encounter with Jesus. It was their first time that they had encountered him. And if you're a Christian here this morning, we said last week that the invitation of following Jesus is not to have one first-time life-changing encounter and then just to get on with the job of being a Christian and the activities of faith. The invitation of being a follower of Christ is to have fresh encounters with Jesus time and time and time again. To be able to say in different moments, I, I think I met with God. I think I encountered God in those moments. That's the invitation of a Christian, of a follower of Christ. And sometimes those encounters themselves, those fresh encounters, are life-changing in, in themselves they bring about transformation in the moment of that fresh encounter many of us would have experienced that other times those fresh encounters are more kind of incremental changes incremental moments they're not necessarily life-changing fresh encounters but actually as you look back over the months and the years at those fresh encounters you know that you've been changed you know that you've been bit by bit conformed and uh, into the image of Jesus himself So, this is for all of us, this series, whether it's for a first time or for a fresh time, encounters with Jesus. And you can encounter Jesus much as this person did for the first time in the passage this morning. So in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, the person in question is Peter. Peter. He's also known as Simon and Simon Peter, just to confuse us. In this passage, he's referred to mainly as Simon, but we're going to call him Peter because that's how he's generally known uh, in Scripture and in the history of the church since. So Peter is aware of Jesus. Indeed, um, his mother-in-law has been healed by Jesus, but he has yet to encounter him for himself. So this is a first-time personal encounter for Jesus, uh, for Peter, sorry, and it has some pretty, some pretty life-changing results, as we're about to see. So, Luke five and verse one to eleven. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he, this is Jesus, saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Peter, put out into the deep and let your nets for a catch. Let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. The thing that um, really leapt out to me when I studied this passage and was kind of praying about it and so on, was just... Just how everyday this encounter is. Just how kind of normal everyday life the moment is that Peter encounters Jesus. By that I mean you know, he's not in the temple as the people were last week. Not in a religious setting. He's not in some public place reading the Hebrew scriptures. He's not in church if you like. He's just at work. He's just finished a tough night shift and now he's tending to his, his nets It's a pretty mundane, workplace, everyday moment. And what's more, I'm guessing he's probably not in a great mood. He's been up all night. He's not caught a thing. He's not going to be able to cover his overheads, let alone pay his business partners, James and John, let alone make a profit. And here he is, just mending the nets that have failed to catch him a thing, failed to make him any money at all. Such an everyday moment, isn't it? It's just a guy at work trying to make a living. I don't think he's looking for a life-changing encounter with God necessarily. He's just getting on with life, mending these nets, probably wondering whether he's going to be able to pay the mortgage, as it were, feed the kids, maybe just thinking about nothing in particular and just letting his mind wander as he just goes about an everyday moment mending the nets by his fishing boat. What is your everyday moment? What is your Every day, day day-to-day, typical, mending the nets moment for you. What's the image that comes into your mind's eye as I say that? What's a typical mending the nets moment? Is it, I don't know, the commute home from work? Giving the kids lunch? Sitting in a lecture? That 8am meeting? Conference call that you dial into every week? What's your everyday mending the nets moment? And are you open to an encounter with God then, in the everyday stuff, in the mending the nets moment? Because often I think we can think that an encounter with God, if it were possible, it would happen in a, in a very religious or a spiritual setting. We'd need to be in church, or maybe in our language, we need to be in one of our midweek life groups. It would need to be a, a moment of overt spirituality for us to encounter God. But Peter, it's just at work. He's had a pretty rubbish day at work. It's a night shift, just mending his nets, everyday stuff. Are we open to everyday encounters with Jesus? And that's the big idea this morning, that an encounter with Jesus is for the everyday. So if Jesus meets us in the everyday, number two, Jesus resources us in the everyday. He meets us in the everyday, he resources us in the everyday. Uh, One of our great church friends in Kingston are called everyday Kingston. So if you're wondering if I thieve their branding, I have just for today. Jesus resources us in the everyday. What do I mean by that? Well, in simple terms, Jesus resources Peter. Peter has not caught a thing or night and at Jesus' command, they go back out to sea, back out to the lake, lower the nets and an extraordinary catch of fish takes place to the point at which the nets start to break, the boats start to sink. It's an extraordinary moment of nothing to abundance. Jesus resources Peter. Now, did you also notice in the reading, in the passage, before this miraculous resourcing actually happens, before Peter does what Jesus tells him to, did you see how Peter expresses his doubt? Did he catch that? He's like, we toiled all night and caught nothing basically saying you want me to go out and fish again seriously you're crazy there's nothing out there no fish to be had expresses real doubt now if you hear what last week we caught up on the podcast we said Jesus is it's amazing he's not afraid of our doubt. he's not remotely thrown by our skepticism or by our lack of faith or by our doubt what he's interested is what he's interested in is seeing whether we'll trust him anyway which is where Peter gets to. And if you, if, you know, if you know anything about Peter, if you read the rest of the Gospel of Luke and Peter crops up time and time again, you'll know that he's, a, he's an emotional guy. He just says what's on his heart, whether it's doubt or faith. And he does the same thing here in verse five. He says, I'm not gonna go out there again. And then he says, actually, at your word, I will let down the nets. It's like doubt, bit of offense, and he chooses the trust. He chooses to obey. I think Peter's quite a good example of what we were saying last week. He listens to Jesus. He's prepared to listen to this rather curious person who's teaching from one of his boats whilst people are standing on the beach. He expresses his doubt, his offense. But, just as we said last week, mainly because, or partly because, he's kind of at the end of himself. He's come to the end of his own resources. As we were saying last week, he's got no fish can't pay the rent, probably can't feed his family, maybe he can't pay his business partners. So because he's at the end of himself, because he's a bit desperate, he keeps listening. And he gets to a place where he's prepared to take a bit of a risk. So he really listens. I just love what we see about Jesus in this in this scene. The way that he just he encounters Peter exactly where he's at. He doesn't begin by preaching at Peter, he doesn't ask him when he last opened the Bible doesn't ask him when he was last in the temple, when did he say his prayers, doesn't tell him off for expressing his doubt. just meets him in his boat, mending his nets in an everyday encounter, a man whose business is struggling, and he resources him. He just meets him exactly where he's at. Some of you might have heard of a uh, person called George Muller. George Muller was born in, in Germany at the end of the 19th century. And uh, he got into a fair bit of trouble as a young man, he was a bit of a rogue, he found himself in prison once or twice and his dad had to bail him out. And eventually George Miller managed to get to university and, and really by his own admission he was just there to try and carve out the most comfortable life that he, that he could. Anyway, George Muller himself had quite an everyday encounter with Jesus that changed his life himself. He was just on a train to Switzerland one day. He had a, quite a profound conversation, quite a profound moment where he encountered something of the love of God for himself, the truth of the gospel. He became a Christian, and his life changed as a result of that pretty everyday encounter. George Muller suddenly became passionate about really two things. He became passionate about telling people about the love of God and the gospel, and he became passionate about reflecting, demonstrating the love of God and the gospel to people. And so George Muller found himself in England, in Bristol, uh, and he became very aware of the profound need of many of the most uh, desperately poor children of the Victorian era in Bristol. So as a result, he basically established a number of orphanages. And by 1837, George Muller had three orphanages, and the third of which had 64 children in it. And one of the little girls, who was, I think she was nine at the time, she tells the story many years later of one of her experiences of being in George Muller's orphanages in 1837. And she says how one morning she and the other children came down for breakfast. Although it became quickly clear that there was no food to feed them. As an orphanage, George Miller relied upon amazing, really, provision of God to keep this thing going. There was no food to be had. And the children asked George Miller, I thought, well, if there's no food, why are we sitting down at this table? And why have you put the cutlery house and the crockery out if there's no food to be had? George Miller explains that he believed God loved them, that he believed God heard prayer, that he believed God would resource them. He said, sit yourselves down, and we're going to say grace for the food we're about to receive. And this little girl says that the children did as they were told and they sat down and George Muller said grace for the food they were about to receive. And then they waited. And literally, I'm told, after a few seconds was a knock at the door. And at the door there was a baker. And the baker explained that last night he had a really bizarre dream. And he felt in the dream that God was somehow communicating to him that he should bake some bread and take it to the orphanage. So he did. And and did George Muller want it? He took the bread and the door closed. And maybe the children thought, well, that's that's an interesting coincidence. A few minutes later, apparently, there was another knock at the door. And this time there was a milkman. And the milkman explained that just outside the orphanage, his milk cart had broken down, the wheel had come off. And he needed to go and repair his milk cart. But he knew if he left his milk cart, probably the milk would be stolen. And so he said, rather than the milk getting stolen, he'd rather that George Muller had it. Did he have any use for the milk? And the children sat down, and they ate their bread, and they drank their milk, they had their breakfast, and they were resourced. Because God loves to provide resources in the everyday moments. He knows what you need. He knows what you need. And it maybe it's not as profound as children who have nothing to eat. Maybe it's even more everyday than that. But the Bible tells us that God is a good father who gives good gifts. He knows what we need. He knows what you need. So, question, are you open not just to encountering God in the everyday this week or this month, but to being resourced by him in the everyday moments? Do we park the everyday moments and wait for the more overtly spiritual moments of prayer or of church? Are you open to being resourced by God in the everyday moments this week? Maybe it's in that tough meeting at work where you just need wisdom, wisdom, or clarity of thinking, or compassion for a colleague? Are you open to being resourced in that everyday moment? Because God will. When the children are playing up everyday moments, you need resources of patience and love. Or as you're going through your finances and looking at those finances thinking, I need resourcing. We need resourcing if this thing's going to happen. Are you open to the resourcing power of God?" In an everyday encounter with him. The Bible doesn't just tell us that God is a good father who loves to give good gifts. The Bible also tells us that God says we should not be anxious about tomorrow. Not we ought not to be, or we probably should try and not to be. He says he shouldn't. Don't want him to be anxious about tomorrow. Not because he wants us to cross our fingers and grit our teeth and have a stiff upper lip because the rest of the passage tells us, he says, don't be anxious about tomorrow because I know what you need. That's why we don't need to be anxious about tomorrow. Not because we're going to try really hard, but because we have a God who knows what we need. If we're willing to trust him, believe in him, encounter him in the everyday, I need resourcing moments of life. And it might be as dramatic as George Muller and the children and no food, and it might be a meeting at work or a moment as you bump into somebody, a stranger. And remember also what we're seeing. Jesus in those moments is not phased by your doubt. He wasn't phased by Peter's initial reaction. I'm not doing that. It's ridiculous. Jesus is not phased by your doubt. What he's interested in is whether you will trust him. Whether you'll put the boat back out, as it were. Whether you dare to put the nets back down again. Whether if Jesus' resourcing moment feels like something that's going to be hard or difficult. It feels like you've got to go and put the nets out again. Get in the boat again. It just feels odd or curious or just mundane. Are you open to trusting him in those moments? Not shelving all doubt, but trusting him alongside doubt. So Jesus meets us in the everyday, gets into our boat. And he resources us in the everyday. Thirdly, Jesus gives us self-awareness in the everyday. What do I mean by that? Well, it seems from the passage that Peter discerns something of who Jesus is as a result of this miracle. And that causes him to realize something of who he is in that light. So after the miracle, by verse 8, Peter sort of changes his tone and says in verse 8, in typically blunt Peter language, depart from me, Jesus, because I'm a sinful man. Now, let's be honest, sin is a pretty unpopular word these days, but it's in the text, so let's talk about it. And I'm very glad that what Anna brought just now during our first part of worship was alluding to it, more than alluding to it, teaching it pretty, pretty, pretty accurately. What do we mean by this word sin? What does Peter mean by wanting Jesus to get away from him because he's a sinful man? Well, it seems to me that at the beginning of the passage, Peter's kind of in the space where he's saying, where well, he's thinking something like this. He's thinking something like, this rabbi, teacher guy, seems a little bit eccentric, eccentric. but what the heck, he did heal my mother-in-law once, and, and all these people seem to come and hear him teach, and I'm pretty desperate, so I guess I'll give it a go, put the nets out again. That's where he is in the first part, yeah? Then this miracle happens, and he finds himself in a, in a different place where he's sort of saying, oh my... That is a miracle. There were no fish, and now there is such an abundance of fish that my nets are breaking and my boats are sinking. The, I am in the presence, he's thinking, of something or someone pretty special. God seems to be at least working through this person. He's in awe. He's found a place of awe. By virtue of Peter being around somebody of great beauty, and great power, Peter is suddenly very conscious of his own lack, his own imperfections. So he's kind of both attracted to Jesus and fearful of Jesus at the same time. And that is often the appropriate response to being near to God as God really is, encountering Jesus as he really is. That's not an uncommon response. In fact, it's regularly the experience of people in the Bible to be fearful when they come near to God as he really is which is not kind of our cultural concept of who God is. Our cultural concept would say, if there is a God, then to come near to that would be a nice experience, kind of like a syrupy, gloopy, nice. Being near to God makes me feel better about myself. It gives me a a nicer perspective on life, and I see life with a rosier perspective near to God. It's not the experience of people in the Bible, famous men of the Bible like Moses and Jacob and Isaiah. When they get near to God, to His perfection, to His holiness, they're terrified. They know they cannot live in the proximity of such like, white hot holiness and perfection and still live. And also at the same time, these are people that, that love God and obey God. Now Peter, I don't think, understands yet really who Jesus is. All he really understands is that God seems to be working through Jesus in some remarkable way. And yet Peter still experiences something of this conundrum, something of this same dynamic. On the one hand, he's fascinated by Jesus, he's attracted to the beauty and the power of Jesus. And on the other hand, he wants to get away. Depart from me, O Lord, he says. Now, I don't think we should be surprised that that combination, fascination and fear, I don't think we should be surprised that that should be the experience of being in the presence of God. Think about it. That's our experience when it comes just to people, let alone God. So what I'm saying is, how do you feel, be honest with yourself, how do you feel when you're in the presence of somebody who's like a, a living, walking superlative? You know, Somebody who's unbelievably attractive or somebody who's unbelievably intelligent. After a while at least, are you not both kind of attracted and repulsed at the same time? It's a little bit of a love-hate relationship to be around someone like that. You're kind of inspired by them and attracted to them and you want to be caught up in the glow of someone like that. And at the same time, people like that highlight the lack in you as well and you kind of want to get away, and yet you're attracted, and you want to get away. I remember about 18 months or so ago, I had the strange experience of bumping into, in loose terms, uh, a guy called Chris Rothshaw, who is the England rugby player, was the captain at the time, and we weird, in the space of two weeks in Kingston, I sat next to him in a doctor's surgery, I was in the same checkout queue in him in Sainsbury's, I was not stalking him, I promise, it was just <laughs> genuine coincidence, my rugby passion doesn't take me that far, and then thirdly, a week later after that, I was in the same station platform, and I'm a massive rugby fan, and he was captain at the time, it's quite exciting to be sat next to Chris Robshaw in the doctor's surgery, you know, almost going to send a text, all that kind of embarrassing stuff to other people, almost going to ask him something, didn't, all that kind of stuff. But why the second and the third time? I'm sort of conscious. Like, this guy is a, 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 super, he is a su- walking superlative. He is a supreme athlete. It's like six foot three, 17 and a half stone of just chiseled muscle. He is a supreme athlete, highly successful, good reputation. After the second and third I don't want to be around a guy like that very often because he just highlights the lack in me of all of those things. So you're kind of basking in the glow of someone like that and at the same time you want to be away from someone like that because his superlativeness just highlights the lack in me of those things. Now, if there is a God, would he not be the ultimate superlative? He would have to be. And so it would make sense that to encounter God, to encounter Jesus as he really is, would draw out of us a combination of fascination and fear. We become aware by being in his presence of our lack, of our imperfections, of the stains that go deep within us. We realize for the first time, or for a fresh time, what it is that most of us spend a fair degree of time hiding, which is that we are fundamentally flawed people. We have flaws and stains within us that go deep. Why do so many of us work so hard? Why do some of us need to be right all the time? Why do some of us worry so much about how we look? Why do some of us have so much stuff? Is it not because in part, at least, we use those things to hide, to cover up, to purify the lack or the flaw or the stains that we know are deep inside of us? We know in our most honest moments that we are fundamentally flawed in different ways. And Peter has that moment where he recognizes, I'm a fundamentally flawed human being and I recognize it because I'm in the presence of this, of this Jesus. And his beauty and his perfection and his power and his grace are so attractive and at the same time makes you want to run away. And he kind of confesses his flawed self, doesn't he? Depart from me, O oh Lord, I'm a sinful man. And look, how does Jesus respond to Peter's confession? I love it. On the one hand, Jesus doesn't say, You're right, Peter. You are a filthy sinner. You want to start living a lot better life and pull yourself together, otherwise, you're in big trouble. Which has been sometimes the tone and overt message of religion, Christianity, the church over the centuries. Some people, if they're honest, would quite like Jesus to say that. But he doesn't. Neither does Jesus say, oh Peter, don't be so hard on yourself. You just need to love yourself a bit more. just need to build your self-esteem up. God is love and he accepts you for who you are. Jesus doesn't say either of those two things. The second of which is probably what the average liberal, irreligious Londoner would quite like him to say. They he doesn't go either, either of those directions. Instead, Jesus says, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And the rest of the passage says, and when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. <laughs> what? What does he mean? What's he saying? Why doesn't he give either of those responses? Seems a bit cryptic. What's he saying? What's he doing? Well, notice, on the one hand, peter sorry Jesus doesn't deny... He doesn't deny Peter's sin. He knows Peter even better than he knows himself. He knows just how flawed Peter really is. He knows just how flawed we really are. He doesn't deny that. But neither does Jesus recommend a course of moral and religious activity to sort it out. Instead, he says, basically, don't be afraid, come to me. It's effectively what Jesus is saying. Don't be afraid. Come to me. Follow me. Don't, Jesus says, don't acknowledge your sin and run from me. He says acknowledge your sin and run to me. You see, sometimes genuine everyday encounters with Jesus Christ as he really is do leave us acutely aware of our own weaknesses or failings or fallibilities Guilt when we encounter him as he really is, the ultimate superlative. And I would suggest to you gently that is a good thing if it results in you running to him, not from him. And, and, you know, we can run from Jesus in different ways, some are more overt than others. We can say, I don't like this talk of God and sin and judgment and wrath, and, you know, I'm going to decide what's true for me and, and live my life accordingly. That's maybe a more overt way of running, as it were. Or we can say, you're right, I I, I do sense a lack in me. I know there are stains in me that do cause me guilt and shame. So I'm going to engage in moral or religious activity to try and rub them out. That's also running from Jesus. It just sounds a bit more respectable and religious. And there's kind of a, a sort of subtopic of that option, which Christians can often do. I know I've done many, many times. And it's kind of this. It's where we say, I know, I, I know I've know, i messed up. I know what I've said, done. It's just so contrary to God's best for me and doesn't honor him. And, and so I'm going to kind of go and put myself on the naughty step for a while. I'll just take myself off and just for these moments I'm going to kind of let God cool down and I'm going to sort of kind of punch myself a little bit, kind of dust myself down on the naughty step and then when I think that God's cooled down and I'm a bit more uh, reasonable and righteous, then I'll maybe approach God. You ever done that? You know something is not right. You don't run to Jesus. You just take yourself off to the naughty step for a bit. Because something in us thinks that he needs to kind of cool down and I need to probably sort of improve myself and dust myself down a bit and then we can come together again all of those options are effectively running from Jesus not responding to his invitation to recognize our flawed state and run to him so I'm so glad that Anna was sharing in the first time of worship what she was sharing about the manner in which Jesus wipes out expunges deals with and forgets forever our sin when we come to him you see to be a christian means in simple terms that you believe in what jesus has done on the cross for you you believe in the fact that he's risen from death to life for you and that he's ascended to heaven for you and one day will return for you and for all his church and that belief nothing else that belief that faith with all of its doubts and clunky moments, that moment of faith, that expression of faith unites you to Jesus, makes you one. doesn't make you an an adherent of his religion. doesn't make you a subscriber to his teaching. That faith and his accomplishments makes you one with him. It's an extraordinary spiritual dynamic. It unites you with him and all that he is and has accomplished. So for a Christian, if if a fresh fresh, everyday encounter with Jesus leaves you aware of your fallibilities, your frailties, your failures, your sin, you are still united to him regardless of that awareness. You're still united to him because he hasn't changed and his accomplishments, which united united you to him in the first place, haven't changed either. The unity, the oneness, hasn't changed So you don't have to go and put yourself on the naughty step or pull yourself together or dust yourself down or make yourself more acceptable to receive afresh the forgiveness and the approval that is already yours in him. And Jesus says to Peter, don't be afraid. I just hear the tenderness in that (laughs) It's possible for Christians, I think, to allow a little bit of inappropriate fear sometimes to look. The kind of fear that says, wow, God, you are, that's appropriate. We see it in the Bible. The kind of fear that stops you from running straight to him the moment you realize or understand or accept your own flaws, that's not a good biblical fear. And that's why Jesus said to Peter, don't be afraid. Come to me. And if, that's the experience of a Christian. That's the inheritance of a Christian. If you're, if you're not a Christian, then you, you can have that like today. That's what a fresh encounter with Jesus does. Yes, Jesus will love to resource you in the everyday moments. He doesn't wait for us to get past all of our doubts and offenses and confusions about what Christianity is and who God is before he resources us and blesses us because he's good and kind. But the ultimate resource, if you like... That Jesus longs to give you for the first time is the only resource that truly deals with the stains, <laughs> the stains and the flaws and the fallibilities that we're all doing our best to hide. And in a moment of belief, you can have that first time encounter, gives you that a resource, the only resource that can truly clean and expunge and purify and leave me whole. And you can have that this morning. And Then you step into this dynamic, which many of us have stepped into, where we're looking for continual, fresh encounters by Jesus, for him to continually conform us more and more into what he's like and less and less of what we used to be like. And We stumble and we get it wrong and we doubt and we get offended, but if we keep encountering him afresh for who he is, we look back after a few months and a few years and we think, that was me then and this is me now. How has that happened? That's what fresh encounters with Jesus Christ as he is do. Just adhering to a religious form of teaching doesn't provide that. Either leaves you feeling proud because you've done all the stuff, or it leaves you feeling devastated because you can't do the stuff. But <laughs> fresh encounter with Jesus as he is, over and over again, finds you changing more and more and more. And why is it possible? Why is this even possible? The big picture of the gospel, of course, is not that Jesus once got into a boat with a guy called Peter. Once came into his everyday setting. The big story of the gospel is that Jesus Christ left the perfection and the purity and the otherness of heaven and stepped into the boat, the everydayness of humankind. That's the message of Christmas that Jesus left behind the perfection and beauty of heaven and stepped into the messiness of broken nets and funny boats and confusions and doubts of human beings. And he wants to step into your boat, whether for the first time or for a fresh time. Tim is a bit of a hero of mine. He's an American pastor. He very famously said that the gospel, in simple terms, is this we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. It's both, and it's beautiful. And it's yours for the first time, and it's yours for a fresh time. Let me ask the band to come and join us and help us to... Respond and worship. What we're going to do in these next few moments is, uh, in a minute, I'm going to pray. And I'm just learning a bit more about what it is to try and create moments for us to respond. And, and sometimes silence or just quietness can be a really helpful way to do that. We're not so used to silence in our type of church. We tend to have lots of noise. But silence sometimes is good. So I'm going to pray. I'll ask you guys just to, if that's okay to remain. Uh, quiet and then I'll just give you some moments to use what I've prayed and respond to it as you feel led to do so, either for the first time or for a fresh time and then we're going to sing and worship and respond we'll take communion together which is something that Christians repeatedly have done throughout history because of what it says in the Bible and we'll also see what God wants to say to us in these moments of worship and response so let me pray Lord Jesus, I want to thank you that uh, you do come and meet us in our boats when we're mending our nets. You came into the mess of humanity. You didn't stay distant. You came into the mess of humanity. With all of our flaws and frustrations and doubts and fears and desires and ambitions and dreams, you came into the mess of it. And I thank you that you love to draw us to an encounter with you. And that can happen in the most everyday of net-mending boat moments. And so I pray for those of us who want to follow you who are Christians, I pray in these moments, would you help us know how to respond to you that we might know a fresh, everyday encounter this week, multiple ones. That our Christian lives might be marked by so much more than attending meetings and groups but by regular, fresh encounters with the person and the presence of Jesus. That we might know you resourcing us, that you might know us, that we might know you challenging and forgiving and sanctifying us to be more and more like you. I pray for wonderful everyday moments with you this week, Jesus. And I pray for anyone who maybe considering taking that first step, making, having a first encounter with you. I thank you that you love that. You met with Peter in his boat, with his doubts and his confusion, and you called him to come and follow you and trust you. And so I pray for anyone here who would consider that option, that they would see you to be beautiful and wonderful, as well as powerful and awe-inspiring. And that they would come to you in this moment, not just for the resources of everyday life, but for the ultimate resources of forgiveness and wholeness and peace and an eternal future that cannot be taken away. Help us, Jesus, by the power of your spirit in these moments of silence now to respond to you. amen amen so we're gonna stand gonna sing together if you feel god is speaking to you come and share at the front and in a moment we'll also be taking communion as well and i'll help us do that in in a few moments let's stand and sing